We're in Matthew 7, 15 to 20 this morning. I'll read it for us. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits, you will know them. Well, it's hard to imagine that Jesus isn't positively connecting the phrase cut down and thrown into the fire with the previous phrase from verse 6 last week, the way that leads to destruction. And I think these passages in Matthew from verse 1 to 20 are all connected and they need to be understood in context. And so I want to take a few minutes to help you see how I'm connecting the various phrases in chapter 7 and how I understand they all work together. But I want you to remember that the big idea here is for us to recognize how important it is for kingdom citizens to learn to be discerning people, discriminating people, recognizing and identifying how things are distinct from each other. I see all of these verses in 1 to 20 in chapter 7 referring to this idea, and I want to explain how I see that. In his teaching in verses 1 to 5 of chapter 7, you'll remember Jesus said, Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And I think the point clearly is don't try to correct others when you need spiritual correction yourself far more. Judge not as simply a principle that suggests that we are not to judge someone else hypocritically with our own self-righteousness. Or perhaps don't judge someone in anger or in ways that are eager to find fault and condemnation in their actions. That's what the Pharisees did, and that's exactly what Jesus was trying to tell us not to be. And then in verse 6 of chapter 7, Jesus had begun with this unusual warning. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Well, it's clear that Jesus wasn't saying that we aren't to use any judgments of any kind because of the judgmental reference to dogs and pigs that immediately followed. And I think with the comment about dogs and pigs, Jesus is using those words to represent people who, after they've heard the gospel or had it correctly preached or explained to them, retain some kind of vicious nature toward the truth of the gospel. But we shouldn't find that response alarming either Because remember that the gospel itself is discriminating. Its message hardens the heart towards the truth as well as calls the heart to trust the truth. 
You'll remember in 1 Corinthians 1.18, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he who is spiritual judges all things, yet he himself is rightly judged by no one. And so the gospel indeed has power to discriminate. Those who choose to partake of salvation receive the gospel with joy and believe it. And those who choose perishing or eternal misery or like we saw last week, eternal destruction, see the gospel as only foolishness. So pigs and dogs then, I believe, represent people who appear to be committed to live very indecent and impure lives. Perhaps they are incurably ungodly. And we're to make a judgment call as to their ability or their inability to accept and receive spiritual truths. You wouldn't want to give what is holy to dogs. You have to be able to discern that some truths are not fit for dogs and swine, Jesus is saying. Because there's a risk of them desecrating the divine truth of the gospel. Pearls were the costliest of all jewels, which symbolizes the preciousness of divine truth. Therefore, you may need to approach some people with caution to keep some truths hidden from dogs and swine. Is this hiding some truths any different from what Jesus said about the parables? You'll remember what he said. The disciples came and asked him, why are you speaking to the people in parables? And he answered, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given for them to know. Even the gospel is discriminating. So apparently there are some who are unfit and insensitive to receive divine truth. And if they receive that truth improperly, they may be inclined to trample those truths underfoot and turn and tear you apart because they aren't sensible enough to understand it. And so here the swine will turn and tear you apart, much like the false prophets in the passage we looked at this morning, who are voracious wolves ready to eat you up spiritually. So it seems that the more important idea here is that we have our senses intact to discern between good and evil at all times. We need to be sensitive to our own conscience to have a sound knowledge of ourselves so our judgment of others is also sound. So in context, Jesus is saying, be careful correcting others when you need spiritual correction. But don't be so spiritually ignorant that you have no insight into the kinds of characters that you're dealing with. Dogs and swine judge divine truth with ignorance and suspicion. 
just like those who hear Jesus' words about entering the narrow gate. They don't believe that's true. Hearing Jesus' words with ignorance and suspicion can end in a long-standing feeling of bitterness and resentment and animosity in the hearer toward the gospel. You probably know some people who have responded to the gospel that way. So be aware that sharing divine truths with some men can make them become uncivil and insensible after hearing those truths. Folks, listen, you have to offer swine, swine food, and dogs, dog food. The gospel doesn't suit their spiritual taste at all. But also know that it's not the pearls you set out in front of them that cause their contempt, but the fact that certain men are dogs and swine. And when the pearls of truth are trampled underfoot, they are trampled because there's not because there's something hateful in the gospel, but because the truth fell among dogs and swine. What serious words these are this morning. So whatever judgment you use in all of your discernment, it must be a careful and thoughtful judgment. Judging between men who are evil and men who are good. To distinguish between the dogs and them that are not dogs. So there's a real genuine spiritual conflict in ourselves in discerning who among men should share, you should share truth with and those whom you should avoid. And you need to be watchful and aware of these things at all times. And I think Jesus is thinking, and while we're in the discerning framework discussion, be careful to discern not only the differences between the narrow gate and the broad and wide gate that I'm calling you to be aware of, weighing those choices out carefully before you enter, but beware of false prophets too. They're far more dangerous than those who would trample the pearls of truth you deliver because false prophets are going to come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. The language is present tense. Be ever careful and watchful for false prophets. Because they will be difficult to identify because they're trying to deceive you. False prophets have a corrupt life, yet wear a mask of virtue in order to deceive. What a serious warning that is. They put the clothing on that makes them look like sheep to fool you. But from within, they are predators. They feed on prey. Inside, they are corrupt, excessively greedy, and destructive people. I imagine that Jesus might be saying, so choosing which gate to enter isn't the only difficulty in this weighty decision you're about to make concerning your eternal destiny. You have to be aware of people who are pretentious hypocrites who want to deceive you, and that's what he's been talking about since the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Be aware of pretentious, hypocritical people. 
and if you're approaching this choice about the gates with the same seriousness that Jesus is warning you to take in deciding, then also be warned that you need to take seriously the threat from false prophets. And so that's kind of my introduction. That's how I'm processing verses 1 to 20. Last week I mentioned that Jesus had been describing to his listeners the cost for them to enter the kingdom of God. His his hearers are to look at the type and the kind of life that he's calling them to and for them to realize the seriousness of what that call entails. And I said the thing that should awaken our senses about the kind of life he's calling us to is its narrowness. He was calling men to enter the narrow gate and to follow him, but there are several ways throughout the, the Gospels that he demands narrowness of his followers. He says, enter through the narrow gate and come unto me. And we understand the clarity of that statement. There aren't any others that we should be following. Come unto me, he says. And when we come, he says, follow me. And maybe at that point, some people may begin to hesitate. And then they might be deciding, are we going to choose the easier way or this way? Are we going to believe him that this is the only way we are to go? When he says, abide in me, we realize that everything he asks of us has to be this narrow and this limited. We understand that to be his disciple means we need to take up our cross and follow him. And when he says, no one comes to the Father except through me, again, we are confronted with the narrowness of his calling. Even his incarnation is a description of his narrowness. He limited himself most profoundly by emptying himself of his divine glory to walk the narrow path of affliction, trouble, and harassment with his face set his entire life on his death at Golgotha. And so in all of this, we understand the reasons for his call to narrowness and seriousness and exclusiveness. He is the exclusive truth and the exclusive life, and there is no other. And the danger in not being attentive to the deception of false prophets, or for that matter, anything that's false, is that false prophets are in some fashion then teaching that the eternal exclusive life he's calling us to can somehow be reached without entering the narrow gate and following him. That's the lie. That's the deception. Don't enter the narrow gate. Don't follow him. So take care to be wise to anyone who is challenging the truthfulness of Jesus' statements by insisting that eternal life might be obtained on much easier terms along some other path. Well, I I think I wanted to 
talk to you about the life of the prophet of God rather than explain the danger of attending to the message of the false prophet and examining their fruit. I think we'll understand what fruits worthy of repentance are much more clearly by examining the fruit of the true prophet of God. So a prophet is one who openly and publicly proclaims something. In the proclamation, a prophet brings forth something to light that has been concealed. He makes something clear that's outside the natural possibility of knowledge. He has a divine connection, and that's why he knows what to say. He's someone with the ability to declare the divine will through the gifting of the divine spirit. Often their message denotes teaching or admonishing or comforting. But often the prophet utters words of judgment and repentance, which is burdensome and troublesome to those who hear it. Above all, though, the life of the prophet of God is marked by sound doctrine and holy living both together. Folks, remember, prophets were people who were called of God. They experienced the divine reality. There's a divine compulsion that goes along with God's calling, almost as if the prophet no longer has his own will. The prophet of God, with the words God had laid on his heart, was merely the speaking tube for the Lord. And they spoke from an experience that others hadn't had, a more intensified experience of the living God. Their pronouncements had a compelling seriousness and a power that drove them to proclaiming God's word. And much like Jesus' proverbial statement to enter the narrow gate that leads to life, the message of the prophet of God left no room for controversy. There's no room for, for alternative speculations. There was only God's uncompromising ultimatum before the people, thus saith the Lord. Prophets were men who were compelled by the divine spirit within them to testify to the certainty of God's word that God had given them to speak. And just like the words of Jesus regarding the narrow gate, oftentimes those words that people heard were menacing and troubling to them. The words of the prophets were words that were spoken with certainty that promised pending punishment for Israel's failure to repent. The message of the prophet was intended to disrupt the life of the hearer. The words of the prophets were meant to be stern and sour and stinging words. Imagine a false prophet thinking that's what his message was about. But behind the biting severity of the words of God's prophets, is God's love and compassion for his people coming through the message as well. The prophet is sent not only to reprimand and rebuke people, but also to strengthen the weak and the feeble. The prophet's words were meant to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. 
They were also doing something else. They were making sure that people were walking the narrow path. And if they weren't, God's prophet was calling them back to the narrow path. Almost every prophet brings consolation and promise in the hope of reconciliation with God, along with condemnation and criticism. And the message of severe punishment for disobedience. And so the prophet begins his message of doom, but he concludes with a message of hope. But folks, remember this. None of the prophets were enchanted with being called of God to be his messenger. They were terrified of the message. Listen to what Jeremiah 20 says. O Lord, you deceived me and I was persuaded. By the way, we're using the King James Version instead of my new King James. You're stronger than I and have prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocks me. For when I spoke, I cried out, I shouted, violence and plunder. Because the word of the Lord was made to me a reproach and a derision daily. And then I said, I will not make mention of him, nor speak any more in his name. But his word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. I was weary of holding it back, and I could not. For I heard the many mocking. Oh, look, it's the man who lives in terror. All my acquaintances watched for my stumbling, saying, perhaps he can be deceived, then we will prevail against him, and we will take our revenge on him. Jeremiah knew that God calling him to be his prophet and his mouthpiece was like a curse. Listen to how bad it was for Jeremiah to be called of God to be his prophet. Cursed be the day in which I was born. Let the day not be blessed in which my mother bore me. Let the man be cursed who brought news to my father, saying, A male child has been born to you, making him very glad. And let that man be like the cities which the Lord overthrew and did not relent. Let him hear the cry in the morning and the shouting at noon, because he did not kill me from the womb. that my mother might have been my grave. Why did I come forth from the womb to see labor and sorrow that my days should be consumed with shame? <laughs> it's almost as if there is a sign over the life of every prophet that says, don't even begin to think that I have come here to flatter anyone. To be a prophet of God is both a, dis a, a distinction and an affliction. The mission he performs is distasteful to him and repugnant to his hearers. In this way, it's very similar to the reaction of Jesus' call to enter by the narrow gate for all those who have decided to go through the gate that is wide and broad. There isn't any reward promised to the prophet for getting the message right. Right? 
And even if there was some reward, it wouldn't change the bitterness of the message. Folks, listen. The prophet of God, the true prophet of God, bears scorn and reproach, just like Jesus and his disciples did. The prophet of God is stigmatized as a madman by his contemporaries. He's insane, they think. His only duty is to speak to the people, whether they hear or refuse to hear. And a profound responsibility rests upon him for declaring the message exactly as he received it. You think a false prophet is worried about anything like that? The prophets of God served as watchmen, someone who's stationed on the wall and is responsible to inform the people of any coming danger. And failure in his duties to proclaim God's word often carried the death penalty. (laughs) Ezekiel 3, 18 says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, hear a word from my mouth, and give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way, in order to save his life, That same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hands. You can imagine a whole lot of people lining up to be a prophet of God, right? Yet if you warn the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but you have delivered your soul. If Ezekiel failed to give them God's warning, he was liable for their lives. But if he faithfully proclaimed the message, he was free from any further responsibility, regardless of the people's response. So I'm trying to get you to think about the the fruit of a true prophet so that you can really start to begin to analyze the fruit of a false prophet. Jesus did mention fruits. He said these false prophets are known by their fruits. It's hard to know what their fruits are and to what Jesus is referring to exactly. When Scott and John and I met to discuss the sermon, we really talked about this for 25 minutes, and we just didn't know what the fruit was for a false prophet. We can say a lot of things about the fruit of false prophets. There's a fair amount of debates in the Uh, commentaries as to what the fruits refer to, but generally speaking, I think it's to one of three things. Are the fruits of false prophets the doctrines they teach that aren't exactly orthodox? Are they their lifestyles which show glaring inconsistencies with what they're saying? Or are they a combination of of the two? Or are their fruits primarily a reference to their converts who are the fruits of their labors? And so the discerning persons who are using wisdom and prudence to weigh out the truthfulness of Jesus' statements to enter the narrow gate and to follow him probably aren't going to be those victims of false prophets. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 7, 17 to 20. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. 
A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is being cut down and is being thrown into the fire. Those are all present tenses in the language. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Now, anyone who was in the crowd listening to the Sermon on the Mount, who had witnessed the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist in chapter 3, would have been familiar with those words John spoke in Matthew 3. This is what he said. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruits worthy of repentance. And even now the axe is being laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. His winnowing hand is his winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clean out his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Sounds like the road to destruction to me. Both Luke and Matthew used aorist imperatives, I talked about that last week, in commanding immediate repentance. They were calling for the confessing of sins in order to be baptized. If you weren't confessing your sins, you weren't going to be baptized. But there's an interesting comment in Luke chapter 7 that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were willing to hear what John the Baptist had to say. They went down there. But when the ultimatum came in the form of a command to repent and bear fruit, fruit worthy of repentance, they refused to be baptized. This is what it said. And when all the people heard Jesus, even the tax collectors justified God having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. So they rejected the revealed will of God for men in scriptures, but not the decreed will of God. Even the tax collectors recognized and proclaimed by word and deed the excellence of the way of salvation that was explained by Jesus. But just like all those who enter at the broad gate that leads to destruction, the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves to repent and be baptized. And I think this passage really gives us the right understanding of how to think about discovering one's fruits. Fruits that are worthy of repentance are the bearing of fruits in your life that have the weight of repentance. Bear fruit equivalent to repentance. Bear fruit having the like value of repentance. And so repentance is that inward change of mind and affections and convictions and commitments rooted in the fear of God and sorrow for the offenses that have been committed against God. I like the way J.I. Packer put it. He said, repentance means turning from as much as you know of your sin to give as much as you know of yourself, to as much as you know of your God, and as your knowledge grows at these three points, so our practice of repentance has to be enlarged. 
And when repentance is accompanied by faith in Jesus Christ, it results in one turning from sin to God and to his service for a lifetime. True repentance will be evidenced and followed by right living, which is key to understanding what good fruit is. So in Matthew, John speaks only to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But in the Luke passage, John speaks to the multitudes to bear fruit worthy of repentance. This must have been something that he was saying to everyone that was coming down to be baptized. You must confess your sins before I will baptize you. Look at the different groups of people who respond to John the Baptist in Luke. And notice what they want. They want him to qualify what he means. What are the fruits of repentance you're saying that accompany baptism? The people who are being baptized seem to be seized with the fear of that statement that he just made and want specific instructions fitted to their particular social positions in life about what good fruit looks like. And John conforms his answer variously depending on the status of the life of the person that's asking the question. So he says, so the people asked him, what shall we do then? And he answered and said to them, he who has two tunics, let him give to him who has none. And he who has food, let him do likewise. In other words, give help to those who are in need when you can and share what you have. That's fruit worthy of repentance. That's a general fruit following repentance. Do good to others. Sounds like a lot of what's going on in the Sermon on the Mount. And then it says, Then the tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than what is appointed for you. In other words, be exact and fair in your collections and don't overcharge anyone. Likewise, the soldiers asked him, and what shall we do? And so he said to them, don't intimidate anyone or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. The word intimidate is diaseo. It means to shake someone thoroughly. In Latin, it's the word where we get concussion. Don't threaten them with violence and don't slander or blackmail them and be content with whatever you're being paid. So listen to what John is saying about fruit here. Fruits worthy of repentance are deeds of justice and charity. Those are the very fruits of repentance, the very first fruits you should consider. And you know, when I was thinking about this, it's a lot like the passage in Micah, chapter 6. You know, Micah has a vision of God, and he understands him clearly. He, he sees that he's perfect and holy and just and righteous. And he's thinking to himself, how can I get this sin off my back in front of this kind of a God? And so he's asking to himself, what fruit can I bring before the Lord to indicate my repentance has been genuine. And so he writes, with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? And then he's thinking and he's thinking, well, maybe I'll just bring like an ordinary sacrifice. Yeah, that'll, well, 
Shall I come before him with burnt offerings and calves a year old? That's an ordinary sacrifice. And then he's realizing how good and holy and just God is. And then he's thinking, maybe I should bring an extraordinary sacrifice. Maybe that's what I should bring to demonstrate the fruits of my repentance. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? <laughs> yeah, that's, well, no, wait. Maybe I should bring an excessive sacrifice before the Lord. And then he says, shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? And then God answers and he begins to write down and God's answer is true repentance is a surrendering of your spirit to the Lord. That's what it is. You surrender your spirit to the Lord because you believe in him and he's true. And then Micah writes, he has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly and faithfully with your God. And so when John was responding to those different groups of people, he was getting them to think about fruits that are filled with integrity and honorableness and justice and decency and kindness and generosity. All those things which they should recognize as worthy fruits that established in their own hearts the same kingdom principles that Jesus had been talking about throughout the Sermon on the Mount. And just like Jesus has been saying since chapter 7, if their repentance is genuine, they have to begin to differentiate. They have to be able to differentiate their own level of sinfulness before they judge someone else's sinfulness. They have to be able to differentiate who can receive the gospel and who can't receive it. They have to be able to differentiate the narrow gate and the broad gate and the decision involved in deciding which gate to go through. They need to be able to discern the fruit of false prophets. And here, John is just saying between the actions that are unacceptable for kingdom citizens and those actions that are acceptable, actions that demonstrate deeds of justice and charity which Jesus declares to be at the foundation of kingdom living. Well, I've tried to help you see the fruit of faithfulness that's worthy of repentance. More than talking to you about the fruit of deceit and misinformation of the false prophet. The false prophet either falsely pretends to be a prophet of God or proclaims what is false as a prophet of lies. False prophets fail to call for true repentance and the true worship of God. That much we probably can figure out. But I think the outstanding indication of a false prophet is that they have no love for truth. The false prophet is ignorant and suspicious of divine truth. And that's why their mission is one of misinformation and lies. So let's think in conclusion here about the good fruit of those entering the narrow gate and following Jesus. People who enter the narrow gate and follow Jesus are people who love the truth. And anybody who says they love the truth, whether a teacher or a prophet or a member of New Life Church, 
must present themselves with authenticity and integrity. This is a hallmark of the kingdom citizen Jesus has been talking about since the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. There's no room for pretentious, hypocritical people in God's kingdom. No room. Good fruit comes through knowing that truth is found in Jesus himself. Be careful to recognize that in his words and in his person, especially as we continue to be surrounded by so many people who hate truth and prefer misinformation instead. Good fruit never attends to the words of false prophets because they're just like everyone walking the broad and easy way to destruction. Misled by false reasoning and a failure to differentiate between the truth and falsehood. Good fruit knows that truth dwells with God himself in heaven. Truth is sourced in God's being. There is nothing in him that is false. Nothing. And though we are surrounded by truth's misrepresentation and the fact that truth is rejected by so many walking the wide and the broad path, kingdom citizens are always seeking to find the truth, always discerning what is true and what is false, and differentiating and clarifying what is true and false. And so in the end, good fruit knows that truth will prevail. And the lies and the misinformation and the hatred for it will be revealed along with all those who have slandered and smeared the truth. These are all people who are headed for destruction. Good fruit knows that in the midst of so much falsehood and misinformation about the Lord and the narrow gate he calls us to enter, we have to remain convinced of his love for us as we abide in him. And that's exactly what John said in his gospel. John 15, this is it, this is what he said. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you bear fruit unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit, for without me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. That message just keeps going through the entire gospel series. And again, we realize the narrowness of following Jesus when he says, Verily I say to you, unless you abide in me, you have no life at all in you. This is the plea for kingdom citizens to be discerning of the truth that's found in Jesus Christ alone throughout all of the scriptures. Let's pray. Father, let our hearts be tuned to the seriousness of your words this morning, taking that challenge to heart, helping us, Father, in your spirit to always seek to find truth. Father, we ask that for the time that remains that we sing and we lift up your name, be an encouragement to us and to each other. And thank you for the time we've had this morning to hear your word and to sit under the authority of it. May you be a blessing to us in Christ's name.
Amen.